out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Esau and this is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should. Always playing in the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be The Lucy Show because I spoke to their vocalist, guitarist, songwriter Mark Vandola very recently to find out about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy sort of stuff. So I've got the interview broken up into three or four easy to digest little segments alongside the usual award-worthy playlist we're going to start with your favorite of mine this is going to be a million things Very energetic power pop, or indie pop as we like to say, on this show. That 
was um, The Lucy Show with the track titled A Million Things. This is David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another exciting episode in my quest to interview every indie band that ever existed in the 80s. There were probably thousands. I'm struggling at the moment. There are several, several hundred. Anyway, this week's special guest is going to be Mark Bandola, who I spoke to, the lead, well, one of the lead uh, members of the band quite recently. Um, so I've got that interview that I'm, um, yes, going to bring playing very soon. But before that, we'll play another track. And before that, well, I think we should do some admin because we love our admin here. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86show. Just put that in. It will, it will find me, David Eastall. And also all these shows have been archived so you can find them on Podbean, uh, Spotify, iTunes and Mixcloud. Just fill your boots. I mean, there are literally hundreds. So um, yes, there you go. But as I said, before we have the first part of the interview, I think we should play another track, because frankly, if you haven't listened to the Lucy show for several decades, and that might be true, um, you'll rethink, what a pan. This is going to be taken from that album that we all loved, Mania, and this is Part of Me Now.
the Lucy's show with the track titled Part of Me and Now. Hello, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show, and this is going to be the first part of my interview with Mark, where we've been talking about, I don't know, various things that you do when you didn't know a person before the interview, um, and then started to talk about the early years of the band, because they were right there at the beginning, the birth of indie pop, which I put down as 83. Um, and that's a fact. Anyway, and this was Mark's reply to those early years and how the band got together. Mark... Tell us all. Tell us now. Well, yeah, we released, I think it was in 83. Was, that was our debut single, 83. Um, that was just on a little a little label. Um, and they had another group called the New Model Army, so they were doing pretty good at the time because I think they were very popular. And so this little label put out a record called, um, a seven-inch single called uh, Leonardo da Vinci. And we were just one of those groups that got really really fortunate because um, John Peel took a real liking to it. He played it a lot. There was one time where he played it twice in one show, just saying, I never do this. And, uh, you know, we were delighted and, and thrilled and kind of no, looking back. Uh, it was just exciting that now I'm honored that he was one of the people who who got a hold of us and stuff like that. But then uh, from there, we, we uh, went, went to a major label and sort of just carried on doing what we were doing. And... Uh, yeah, it, you know, we got to do a lot of touring that we wouldn't have got if we hadn't uh, signed up and made an album and all that. So, um, but yeah, the band had been going a long time before we were signed. That's for sure. Was it okay? Because there's you. You were a five piece, but it was it was whose band kind of was it, or was it an actually five piece band? You know, as in there's often a dynamic or somebody well, who writes the songs. Yeah. Depending depending how you write, I'm not sure how many people will be interested in the trivia of this, but it actually was, the idea was to start, I came over to England on my own, and then I had this really good friend from high school who was a couple of years younger than me, and when he got out of school, he came over to England as well with the intention of sort of joining me on my mission to try and start a band. So um, we're both from a place called Calgary in Canada, although I'd grown up in Winnipeg, I'm a Winnipeg person. Um, but um, we we set it up together and we we just started playing the local pubs in the early 80s it was a really good vibrant scene where bands you could go into a lot of pubs for free and you'd see bands doing original material not, not necessarily doing that sort of I don't know cover versions of Johnny Be Good or even Rolling Stone songs people would be writing their own songs and you could go from pub to pub hearing you know a ska band and then you'd go and you'd hear something kind of a little more I don't know what you call it um, uh, something like Echo and the Bunny Men or something like that. You go from place to place, and we we were lucky. We got some residencies and stuff like that. And then that's when we finally, after a long time and touring in places like the Rock Garden, Covent Garden, we eventually released that single. And from there, it just took off. But it was it was my initial germ of an idea. And then uh, this guy, other fellow, Rob Van Deven, um, he was very integral because he sort of he put. His style was the, uh, what he called, he put his finger on the pulse of the moment. And I think 
um, I learned a lot about how to kind of write in a, a sort of a indie style way. I needed to be brought out of the the Beatle nostalgia thing a lot. If yes. you can understand that. And I still, I'm still a devoted Beatle fan. But um, I, I can see the point, and he helped to sort of take me into a, a further, more modern way of thinking and all that. So um, it was it was very valuable, and we you know we developed from him sort of his naivety, of which of which I was the more skilled musician. His naivety aided me to sort of look at things in a different way, whatever you call it. That does seem like an amazing thing to do, though. I can't imagine many people in England going to Canada, but to be quite young and think, right, I'm just going to go across the water to a completely foreign place, you yeah. know, pre-internet, let alone dial-up, um, and, <laughs> and, and to discover a whole new continent, a whole new country. I mean, yeah. did, were you just very gung-ho and um, amazingly sort of adventurous? I was, um, well, I, that's really nice of you to appreciate that, because I've got to admit, I feel a bit self-conscious saying to people I was sort of culture-shocked, because you shouldn't be, it's the same language, but it, it did feel, and, you know, this, this ties in with what, what England's going through right now, or what the UK is going through right now, is that it, Britain just felt really European to me coming from North America, and it felt great, and it was, I was very shocked and, and amazed by everything that was different from North America. Um, but um, I'd been drawn, there was two, two things, and I think I can speak for the other guy as well, for Rob as well, that um, we were sort of really thrilled by what had happened to the British invasion and stuff, and we liked a lot of the stuff in the 70s that was The Who. And then for me, when I sort of heard uh, about punk, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it. Uh, and then we got the imports of the Sex Pistols album and stuff like that, and it just sounded fantastic. It sounded like rock and roll to me. And I'd already had the New York Dolls album and stuff like that. So it, it wasn't that much of a shock. And when I heard someone like Elvis Costello, I thought, right, they're doing songs. You know, this is something I can really relate to. And it disposed of all the, um, what, what you call the paraphernalia of giant stacks of amplifiers. And I thought, we're getting back to basics here, and I can do. So that's when I sort of picked up my guitar and thought, now's the time to go. And that was, that was in uh, 1978, the end of 1978. Yes. But at the same time, you know, Britain was also struggling in, in so many ways, politically not culturally, but, you know, things weren't going great in the UK. Oh, oh no, it was, it was a terrible, terrible mess. And a, a person coming from a very um, suburban North American city to go and, and be a living. I was living for a little while in Earl's Court, which was very run down at the time. And I spent a lot of time in the West End. And they had the, uh, the bin men strike was going on for ages. And there was just mountains and mountains of rubbish all through the West End and rats and stuff, which I'd never seen rats in a downtown area before, you know. So it was, um, yeah, it was all kind of um, a real slap in the face in terms of a culture shock. But, um, but in the end, I warmed to it really quick because it seemed like with the music and the people, I was able to get on so easily and feel that I was made to feel pretty welcome to be honest so that was great yes and initially you had a three piece didn't you midnight movie midnight movie oh, wow you have done a little bit of homework my god <laughs> with with your uh, your yeah. other Canadian fr uh, friend Rob but also with Paul on drums so did that was that quite a was that just a sort of a bit of a I don't know a, a quick band to sort of get the ball rolling yeah, well, I've got to say, we, we built up a big fan base in our local area around it was South London, sort of uh, Clapham and, uh, I'm not sure, Wandsworth and Battersea and all that. We 
Brixton as well. We built up a big fan base. But what we were doing then would, so, I don't know, it's, um, I was so influenced by the Beatles and the Who and that sort of thing that I would say that we were, we were much more of a power pop band then in, in that kind of, I don't know what you call it, Dwight Twilley, mid-70s sort of style. Um, and I think we had a long way to go in terms of offering something new. And that's when Rob Van Deven actually stepped into the fold because with Midnight Movie, I was the primary writer. And then as we shifted, and it was Rob's idea to call the band The Lucy Show, and I found it quite shocking, but now I do think it's kind of the best name we could have ever had. Um, so um, with, with him sort of stepping out in front, and then I sort of, I, I think I stepped up the thing of, of kind of try more imaginative guitar behind his lead vocals. Um, we, we developed a new sound as more The Lucy Show, whereas Midnight Movie, I think, was, I'd like to think we were entertaining and good, but it was very derivative, you know. Mm-hmm. And that is going to be the first part of our interview with Mark Vandola from The Lucy Show. Don't worry, we've got lots more of that. And um, I hope you make notes because I will test you at the end just to make sure you are paying attention. But I think um, it would be a good time to play some more music from those indie pop classics from that classic album. This is going to be Dream Days. I'm not even sure that's on the album Mania. But anyway, enough about that. We're just going to rock on. Here we go.
Yes, big production sounds. That's the uh, Lucy Show, and that's a track titled Dream Days. That came from their 1984 album, Undone, which came out, I do believe, on A&M Records. Yes, it's true. I know my facts. It's not just going to be me just guessing. Anyway, this is the second part of my interview with Mark, where I've been talking about the interesting and fascinating indie scene of the 80s us kids, us pop fans. And um, yes, the infl- uh, the, those three bands that a lot of uh, musicians and uh, other artists have mentioned, the June Brides, Cove Twins and the Smiths has been hugely influential. And I was uh, curious to know, um, yes, where did the Lucy show fit in to those uh, sort of amazing sounds and bands? And this was Mark's reply. Mark, give us the reply. Um, I could see the, the, the bond between something like what the Smiths were doing and us but I mean they came along um, as far as I I became aware of them after we were sort of already we probably made one or two singles by then and were doing our own thing and and it did seem after being told for a long time as Midnight Movie and Early Lucy Show that you guys got to get some synthesizers and stuff guitars are kind of out next thing you know thanks to the Smiths and R.E.M. guitars were suddenly back in and we were a guitar band so Things had come round to work for us a bit. Um, I don't know the band. A band I really did like a lot back then was, and I've been even posting a few things on Facebook just out of, out of nostalgia. Is uh, Psychedelic Furs, and I think they started a couple of years before us. They, they were very early um, things, and I guess really even early uh, Simple Minds really liked that stuff as well. Yes, well, there, there was. I was just re, sort of realizing that actually, the first bands of that kind of more indie, more than they were more indie than post punk was Simple Minds. I suppose even you two were a little bit like that. Yeah, um, and Magazine were a good example of something. I was very, very impressed by uh, Howard Devoto's project after the Buzzcocks. Yes, they were fantastic. So as the band started to to get airplay and also sort of sign from Shout Records to A&M, which must have been quite a big thing for you to sign, because obviously this is a major, whereas most people had that kind of indie uh, kind of ethos. Did that that seem like a big thing to do or were you like quite happy to go with A&M? Well, the thing is, A&M went through a big shake up about a, a year and a half or something after we signed. We'd done two singles with them and our first album. And while we were with them, this is my memory's pretty vague, but I thought I thought we got a lot of good support. I, I uh, you know, I really I think they were they were trying themselves to see into the future and then someone came along, I think it was from the American office, which was the top top brass and I think they said, Right, we're wiping it all clean and they got rid of the people who had signed us and they got rid of loads of bands. There was also, there was another psychedelic band called the Plain Jane who were pretty good and they were kinda of like the Cramps and they just they wiped the Plain Jane and the Lucy show right off the roster. You know, you can't have stuff like that. And uh but we we up until that point, um, you know, with the people who'd signed us, I thought we were we it felt like sort of we'd signed with someone, I don't know, maybe the equivalent the attention you'd get from something like at Rough Trade, I don't know, I can only speculate, but uh, yeah, we, we were treated pretty good, and it felt good because uh, the, that was the time they had this thing, and you're probably very aware of this from your, your sort of focusing on that era, that American college radio was such a big bloody deal back then, and uh, we benefited from that no end. We did really, really well on American college radio, so um, when we toured America, 
it seemed like we had a really good, strong fan base right from the very start. So that that was kind of shocking and a delight, I can tell you. Yes, and also you were invited to support the ba- you know REM, which were like I suppose the band at the time for that sort of. Yeah. I suppose at that time you were still having bands coming through, but you weren't probably quite there like Sonic Youth and the Butthole Surfers and Big Black. Oh. But REM were able to cross over into the mainstream. Yeah. Much. Yeah, when we supported them, they they were just about to sort of, I guess, as for, by my estimation, crack it really big. And they were already a really good band. And I have, uh, all these years later, I really have just the same respect for REM. And I had loads of respect for them then, and I have lots of respect for them now. I think they're, they're really, you know, uh, their integrity is never in question. I think they were really good. And for one thing, we'd, we'd been supporting lots of different bands, um, who their egos got in the way and were really horrible, but REM were exactly the opposite. They were very encouraging. They were really, really nice guys, in fact. Yes. So this was around the time your first album, the, the debut album, came out, Undone. So yeah. was was this, you know, because, because one thing I've, I've sort of discovered doing this show, that most bands have a five-year narrative, and, and, you know, in that period, you know, they have a... I don't know, 12 months to 18 months, sort of getting together, making a sound. Often at that time, they were sort of probably claiming unemployment benefit. And then John Peel, you know, plays the single, they get that session. That first album, things are going generally quite well. And then, you know, it's a, it gets a bit trickier when stuff starts to sort of happen, as in trying to do the second album, record label business and dynamic. So you were sort of obviously at that point, everything was just falling into place really well. Yes, yes, it, it it was really good because we'd come back from an American tour um, and we're going to start making plans to do a second album with the record company, you know, the A&M deal. And that's when we got the, the bad news um, that they were going to just get rid of us and all the people, all the people who'd signed us and stuff. So um, then we... we well, we had our management company and they looked around and they, they found this company that were signing people like... Um, What's his name? The guy from the Big Star, you know, um, oh. the main, you know, the guy who's in the box tops as well. What's his name? Yes, I can't quite remember it. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, they're, they're signing them and they had all, all sorts of different kind of jangly guitar bands. So they, they had us record another album. And this one we got to do with the uh, producer who we'd wanted to use the first time, uh, but he was unavailable. So second album we went and did some demos with John Leckie, and that that was a life sort of changing experience. Because, um, well, I I guess it's safe to say that guy's kind of a genius. He's he's really brilliant. So. Uh, yes, well, the the famous John Leckie. I know I spoke to a few people who said, and then we, because obviously producers have such a huge kind of influence on a band and the sound. So yeah. having having working with someone like that must have felt like you know like a lot of people, especially those indie bands. You know, the, the production often wasn't great, but when they did a John Peel session at the BBC with some someone like Dale Griffith, you know, it's like, God, that was amazing. You know, we, yeah, did, we got yeah. the sound we wanted. So often yeah. having someone like John Leckie and the other person a lot of people got produced by was someone like Youth, who seemed to be sort of working yes. with everybody at that time. Yeah. So did you find that that production just made the album that much better? Yes, I did, actually. And uh, because I've already... With, if this doesn't sound like I'm repeating myself, but... Um, with with Rob Van Devon's unique pop style, 
um, and mine, mine that had been so nostalgic, and I'd learned a lot from Rob and everything. It was great to work with John because John actually had a musical history of going back to the era of music that we loved, the old music, but he wasn't really that... He never pursues the thing to try and emulate exactly what went before. He's always, I think he's always shopping around for a new uh, sonic adventure or something like that. So some of our sort of stuff we did with him, you could sort of say, well, that's, it's, it has a, a 60s ring to it, but, but certainly he imprinted something very unique and, and I'd say kind of wilder on top of our sound. I, I felt working with him from the first day I ever saw him working on a desk or whatever. And he, the first day I saw him, he had no engineer. And I thought he seemed like an absolute wizard behind the desk. He was just running from one end of this giant mixing desk to the other and twisting dials and stuff. And it was it was like watching a Merlin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So, um, now, and we're back in touch, me and him. And, and one of the reasons we'd worked with John was because um, we could hear what he'd done uh, and what I've just described to you, sort of what I think he did on those really first couple albums he did with The Fall, um, This Nation Saving Grace and the one before that wonderful and frightening world. The, the, he, he knows how to channel something into a really groovy sound, and yet, and yet it's not, it's not um, a throwback to what you've heard before. Yes. That's kind of genius, really, isn't it? That's the yeah. Well, that's what I say. He has got a he's got a mind like no other, and I I learned a lot from just sort of watching him and 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 watching decisions he'd make, and he'd say, "What about this?" And it would be something unexpected, and it'd be, "Oh yeah, that's great." Yes. So what then happened post A and M? Because then came the tricky second album, I guess. Yeah. Well, that, that's what I mean. This was the album we did with Lecky, though the second album, and and. Uh, that that was put, these people who'd signed uh, the guy from uh, Big Star and a few other people. I'm trying to think who who'd signed um, Dream Syndicate and these people like that. I think they were called. Um, but uh, yeah, that that was when it were. And then we got that out. And then we did our second big tour. But while we were making that album, uh, that's when I got a little bit uh, like I wanted things to sound a certain way and. Uh, I was not too happy with the, the, the style that our, a couple of the guys in the band had gone. I'll, I might as well take the flack for most of this. Um, and I was really just wanting to work with Rob and the other two guys. So we ended up finishing the album as a four-piece, but then when we went to promote it, um, I, I sort of chose to work with session players, and we, we went on tour with the other people instead of the other previous two members. Wow, that was tricky. It was really tricky, and it wasn't very nice. And uh, I got some great results, I do believe, in the tour. I think sounded better for it. Um, but in a way, uh, I'm not really sure if that sowed some seeds or whatever um, uh, of discontent in the group or whatever. Um, but um, the tour went great, so there was no problem there. And uh, we'd had those two singles. One was called um, A Million Things, and then the one that followed that did really, really well in in the UK on radio, but the company was a big mess and they hadn't shipped out records. So we had this song called New Message that was getting so much airplay that, you know, the record company was wondering, you know, or, or our management were wondering why we weren't sort of in the charts and because no, no sales returns were coming through because there was no records in the shops and ever so I, I'm not sure if that was BMG because they're distributors it was an indie company with with majors and uh, think, I think it's a money problem but you know we didn't know anything that was going on so I think that's what happened to a band 
um, if you're not sort of in charge of your own books or whatever. <laughs> yes. The murky and interesting world that is rock and roll. There you go. That's the second part of my interview with Mark from The Lucy Show. And um, I think we'll break it there before we have any more interest and chat. I think we should play another track by the band. This is titled New Message.
Indeed, more power pop, indie pop from the Lucy Show. That's a track titled New Message that also came out, came, um, or was on the album Mania. This is David Eastall, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86 Show. I'm now sounding slightly desperate, but um, what's new? Anyway, this is going to be the third part of my interview with Mark from the band, where I've been talking about the tricky world that was the changing musical landscape, of, especially the 80s, when things went from um, a lot of jangly pop to then the dance scene. And I was just curious to find out how he coped, or the band. Mark, how did you cope? Well, we did try to get a third album together, which didn't didn't come together, and we were we were trying to see if we could embrace some of the sort of, uh, I don't know what you call it, computer technology, but it didn't go very well for us. So our last album was left incomplete. Um, And, you know, I think the last things that ever happened was that me and Rob were still writing together and um, the management company just said, look, look, guys, you know, and we, we felt they had stuck by us so that we weren't angry with them, but they just said, look, we're going to let you go now. And, uh, and that was it. And I think it was just kind of a slow winding thing where, and, and I sort of moved out of London for a while. And so I wasn't in touch with Rob all the time. And it just sort of, it, it you know, looking back, it just sort of, it, it drifted like sort of friends falling away, really. Um, but, uh yeah, so it was only the two albums we ever got to make, but we, you know, some singles before that and some singles from those albums and stuff. But um, yeah, the touring had gone well, and oddly enough, around that same time of that second single, the record company, this indie company, had sent us to Germany to do a tour there, and that had gone really well as well. So, in in the face of live audiences, it looked like things were going well for the Lucy Show, and uh, you know, it, it sort of came to a clunking end in about 1987, really. Yes, a cl- the classic year, isn't it, for for a lot of bands? So, did you yeah. have a moment where you kind of all sat down with with all of you and say, "This is it," or did it just kind of not even have that kind of finish? No, it didn't. I don't think. I think at one time after we hadn't seen each other for a long time, I remember being on the phone to Rob and just saying uh, that you know I guess we might as well say it's sort of finished now. And I think neither of us really liked to hear it, but I think we had to admit that you know, where can we go from here? And you know he continued to make music, uh, doing doing things which he's released uh, independently uh, uh, and made. He made an album by a group called, he formed called Zero Zero, and I actually went to see them live, which was really, and it was a great great concert in downtown London at the um, Borderline. And uh, I went to see, it was the only time I've ever watched Rob do a show with, without me being on the stage with him, and he was really good, and the band was really good as well. Yes, and so. did you, and, but you also continued to make music after that with a, an EP, Oh yes, I did one thing because because of the REM connection, I'd become very close friends. When we toured America, I ran into a few times Mitch Easter, and we just we just really really clicked, you know. We and we're still in contact together. And um, a, a thing was set up with another um, an American company taking a chance on me, and they got in touch with Mitch, and so I went over to what was the the studio that he'd done his original REM albums, and uh, Mitch sort of produced an album for me, of which. Um, I just managed myself to release an EP of it uh, called Till Tuesday. Yes, and then and, uh, did, and and then did and then after that, did you continue to sort of make music, you know, off and on? Well, I'll tell you tell you what happened, and I I want it to be clear that um, 
I, I go, was drafted in through other musicians who I knew to get a job in video games. And I, I don't know how to play a video game. I've never played one, but I managed to stay in that industry for about six years making music and sound effects for video games. Uh, not, nothing grand, nothing at all. But um, yeah, it, it was a really good thing. It, it taught me how to use certain things of equipment, how to make music in a different way in the changing world of, of not using tape anymore and using a computer as your you know recorder. So uh, about six years or even longer, maybe working in video games, and uh, and then I, I started a band called Typewriter. Um, and, and I released three albums as typewriter, and, and that was critically well received and everything, but um, it, it, it didn't sell very much. So, um, and now I'm kind of uh, doing psychedelic music here. I've got a big festival to play this coming weekend as well, next a week today, um, with a band called the Ramsgate Hovercraft. Yes. So, you know, music has, has, has never left you, has it? No, no. I'm, I'm full time music all the time now, and I'm doing, uh, well, this. You know, in terms of where I'm at now, the, the hovercraft is my main project. But I've been doing a lot of recording with the the sort of king of dub. He lives in Ramsgate, just down the road from me, is Adrian Sherwood, um, and I've been recording with him and with the lead singer from that Bristol group, the pop group, named Mark Stewart. So I've been playing with those two guys um, at, in the recording studio, laying down bass guitar on this this weird dub music and uh, playing guitar and keyboards for Adrian Sherwood at the moment. So it's sort of a, it's a really groovy scene out here in the East Kent coast. Well, I would imagine, because I can remember, you know, obviously you mentioned the words Adrian Sherwood and you just you know, instantly transported back to John Peel talking about the latest On New Sound release. And, oh, yeah, yeah, um, no, um, it, it, it's really big and we're working a, a, to, on a lot of stuff. He's got a new, it's even mentioned in Mojo magazine that his next album that he's putting out, his solo album next year, it'll probably be in the springtime. Um, it's got a, a, he wants to go more psychedelic and that's what he's he brought me in for because he, I'm I'm proud to say he likes the Ramsgate hovercraft. He says, "Come on, Mark, let's let's make some psychedelic music now." Yeah, right. My God. So so when you you know so occasionally because look back and and because you brought out a compilation uh, of the Lucy Show in 2011, Rem- yeah. Remembrance. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. Did you? Um, yes. Did that feel quite a nice experience? Because obviously you were bringing out a lot of demos and sort of obscure songs and even the first ever single. So well, did that feel like something that was um, keeping everything tidy and archived? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that got some very good, garnered some good reviews I mean, from a lot of fanzines and, and stuff. I think some American uh, actual newspapers uh, reviewed it and stuff. But, um, yeah, like I said, this is at the beginning of our conversation. That That is... It, with its lo-fi, accidentally lo-fi, you know, it's not intentional, but the fact that we use such primitive recording devices and you can put stuff out like that now, um, you know, it sort of puts things more into perspective. I always thought you could release stuff that was rough, you know. Um, so to, to put stuff like that out in this era seems very natural. It, it doesn't seem very shocking at all. And people people are more open-minded to it because, like I said, when you've got stuff like, well, we, here we are sort of 50 years down the line from the Velvet Underground, but also guided by voices and all these different people, what Beck has done, it, you know, things can be pretty raw. 
So, uh, you know, that compilation included some raw stuff as well as, you know, I I guess you could say some of it was slick, but I, I try and I, <laughs> I never aspire, and I don't think the Lucy Show ever aspired to be slick, but it had some nice recording quality some here and there, you know. Right, let's leave it just there, just for a minute before uh, we enter that last part of the interview. I know it's been an emotional moment, but anyway, I think we should play another track by the band. And yes, it's from that album, Mania. This is titled Sun and Moon. You guessed I was going to say that, didn't you? Oh, 
And that, again, is a track uh, by um, The Lucy Show titled Sun and Moon. This is going to be the final part of my interview with Mark Bandola, where I've been talking about the excitement of being a fan and those kind of, um, well, we look back and think what amazing amount of music there was. And uh, luckily we had John Peel, The Gatekeeper, The Enemy Music, um, The Melody Bacon Sounds, plus also all these kind of indie clubs that uh, scattered around the country. And I was just asking him at that interesting question, or just statement really, um, whether he felt that he was part of a scene, um, because he was obviously in a band and not just like me, he was a fan. And this was his reply. Mark, take it away. Yeah, well, it was. And, you know, I don't know if we ever sort of, uh, if, you, if you would describe it as being part of a clique or anything like that, but with that sort of thing, whether whether you you do a sweeping thing across the board and you say, oh, it's bands like uh, the Comsat Angels and the Cure and then and like that, and we knew from from the college radio thing that the people who were getting into hearing us on the radio and buying those singles that we were putting out, I, you have to assume that they include us under that umbrella of you know of integrity because certain to this day, you know, you got to say, okay, Robert Smith, you did things your way and everything. And in a way, if you feel you're being appreciated for what you honestly are trying to express, then um, that makes the whole thing either worthwhile or even more worthwhile. Yes. So I guess, I guess you could say to have been part of that group, some of those bands being really, really good. And, uh, uh, and there was some of the other oddball things that were really good because something like Kate Bush was coming out in the mid '80s with you know running up that hill and so um, you know that would make the college radio and, and sort of down down the thing at number three you'd have the Lucy Show and at number two you'd have Kate Bush or something it would just be thrilling to be in that company really yes and also dear old John Peel introduces all to the the wonderful sound of the Bundu Boys which um, yeah. obviously was a, was another great moment. And do you, you know, as as you all sort of go your sort of separate ways, to quote Joy Division, well, not quite, but um, yeah. did you ever keep in touch with Rob or any of the other members of the band? Um, well, yeah, vaguely. I've lost touch with our original drummer, Brian, and he was a, a wonderful fellow and did a lot uh, in, in the efforts in the early days to, um, well, I'd say even established our sound as well as physically helped the band and stuff like that. But, yeah, he was great. Pete, I, I don't have any contact with him aside from social media occasionally. And Rob, I have not heard, spoken to him for a long time because he, he now lives in Spain. Right. So, yes. Um, um, and I don't can't even think now. Maybe it's three years he's been out there. But before I went uh, in 2003, I think it was, or 2004, I moved to France. So up until I'd left London and he was still in London then, so for about whatever it was, 15 or 12 years after the Lucy Show split up, occasionally I still went in and played in on demos and stuff of his. And he he released that album, Zero Zero. Um, and uh, I think I'm on three songs on that album as well. So, um, yeah, I did, we, we stayed in touch qu- quite a bit for quite a few years and crossed paths and, you know, always... You know what are you doing now? What are you doing now? But um, I've, I've lost touch. He's he's got a, he's he's raised a family and he's got a lovely little daughter. I believe she's probably about twenty-five years old now. I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, no, she's probably something like ten. But you know, he's he's got a family. He lives in Spain somewhere. I think it's Cordova or something. I'm not sure. Yes. Um, God, but, um, your life is all you know from Canada to. 
London to Ramsgate to Spain or France. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, when you, you know, look back, do you sort of feel quite amazed with the journey that you took? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Only because, you know, I know I, in the case of friends who you made a long time or something like REM, they, they scale the heights and stuff like that. But I've also got lots of friends and some of them now who I'm witnessing playing small clubs around here. You just think, um, yeah, I, I, I got to be... Um, you know, part of the, I don't know, industry is such an ugly word, but I got i got to be part of the thing where I toured and people were able to come and hear my music and stuff like that. And a lot of people who are talented don't get that chance. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not at all bitter about the Lucy show because I, I know it, it could have gone either way with no, you know, no break or, you know, a smaller break or something like that. So, yeah, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not overwhelmed, but I'm, I'm pretty pleased to look back and say that that much got done, you know. Yes. And what would and, you... No, after you... No, I was going to say, all I was going to say is that in the case of something like that, and what I... I didn't like the video games themselves, but what I learned from fellow musicians who were showing me how to use the equipment when it came to be... I don't know if you've ever heard any of my typewriter albums, have you? No, I haven't. Oh, you just um, send me your details in in on social media, and I'll mail you some typewriter music. Oh, excellent! Uh, and uh, you can have a listen because uh, what I did and and what I'm doing now with the uh, the, the Ramsgate hovercraft is, it's it's a kind of um, it's gone more and more psychedelic. And I think with typewriter, I took what I'd learned from the Lucy show. So I feel like it really hasn't stopped that much. I I, I try not to let it because it. If 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 I um, step away from it for very long for any any reason at all, um, it calls me back. <laughs> yes, I I have sort of witnessed this in in sort of so many people's lives. Who, I mean, I think they kind of wanted just to put the whole kind of thing behind them and stick the guitar in the cupboard and never think about it again. And then it sort of creeps out, and then they have that yeah. little temptation to play. And then, you know, even if it is in yeah. small venues now, which is, I think people still quite enjoy that creative process. So yeah. it's good. And what, what would you, just kind of slightly lastly, but what would you say to your an 18-year-old self? I mean, you know, from what you've learned over the years, you think, God, oh, that would have been a really good thing to have just kn- knew that before I started or when I was starting. Um, well, I think um, when we when I left Canada and when Rob left Canada, it it was we came from a very big city. Calgary's pretty big, and I I think compared to London, um, nothing could have been um, more shocking than the stepping into one of the the major cities of the world, culturally and size wise and and competition wise. I, I'd sort of say just you know brace yourself and believe in yourself a lot more than I, because I think sometimes in those earliest of days, and, and the, there were plenty of days where I felt uh, discouraged, you know, I'd say, you, you got before you even set out, get ready to, you're going to have to be strong to survive it, you know, and I think I did, but I, it, like I say, there were moments of discouragement, and I think I could have been better prepared for that, so just stand by your, stand by your talent, or stand by your belief, or your, you know, whatever you whatever you believe in and that you've got to communicate and just go for it and don't, you know, don't get thwarted by the number of people or, or those people who tell you you're not any good or something. Yes, which is always tricky. And there's also the other thing. I don't know how you managed to, or whether you did manage to manoeuvre that world of publishing and sort of royalties, but did that go sort of well or, or a bit sort of not the greatest moment? 
No, no. Well, we didn't. We I would say we didn't get ripped off from publishing very much. Uh, I'm not sure down the line now if if I'm owed stuff um, from anything. But I have a feeling at the time that um, our publishing company, which oddly enough was a very big publishing company and had people like uh, like Help Me Rhonda Beach Boys era stuff on them, uh, they they. They really believed in us and uh, gave us a lot of opportunity. Sent us in the studio for demoing and stuff like that quite a bit of the time, and uh, sort of kept us buoyant financially, uh, for you know, as as much as we could hope for a while there. So I have no complaints then. But the royalties thing is a mystery to me now. All these, I mean, we got royalties from radio play for a while, but that eventually goes. You know, this this ain't no sort of back in uh, born in the USA situation going on where I better check on radio play. And that is the end or the final part of the interview with Mark Bandola from The Lucy Show. Thank you ever so much for giving me the time for that. Much appreciated. And that, dear listener, is it for this week. But don't worry, I've got loads more. Um, so if you want to, I'll just say it one more time. I know I'm sounding desperate, but if you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86show. I will be there. It's always nice. Make it, um, I don't know, positive, constructive, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, otherwise, don't bother. Um, this is going to be the first ever single by the band, Leonardo da Vinci, that I think came out on a 12-inch, no, 7-inch flexi, 12-inch, and hadn't been invented in 1983. But um, yes, have a great week. Oh